Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. John Angelos, the COO of the Orioles. Where for you does this come from? Because, I mean, with all due respect to to John Henry and uh, Tom Werner at the Red Sox and Mayor Marty Walsh, you know, it's easy to put out a statement that just says, this is not us, we condemn these actions. It's a lot harder to do what you did, which is to put out something that condemns racism and tries to actually unravel why this racism runs so deeply and then doesn't make it just about one or two bad apples, but really tries to enhance people's thinking about how we can organize and stand up uh, against it. So, so where for you did that impulse come from? I think it comes from thinking about how much harder it must have been to do those things 50 years ago or to speak up or speak out. 50, 60, 70 years ago, or for that matter, 150 years ago. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are doing a full show on the Adam Jones incident in Boston. That's where the Baltimore Orioles all-star outfielder had peanuts thrown at him and was called racial slurs by the Fenway faithful. I'm going to lay down the background of what took place, a little bit about Boston history and the intersection of racism and sports in the city of Boston, and then we're going to speak to John Angelos, the COO of the Orioles, who put out a blistering statement to me at The Nation magazine about what took place. We're going to talk to John Angelos about that. We also have the Just Stand Up, Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. We've got a Kaepernick watch, a very interesting one this week. But first, the background on the Adam Jones incident at Fenway Park. Okay, so I already mentioned the incident that took place. Fenway Park, Boston, a group of so-called fans throw a bag of peanuts and shout racial slurs at Adam Jones. After the incident, this is what he said to USA Today. He said, 
I just go out and play baseball. It's unfortunate that people need to resort to those types of epithets or degrade another human being, end quote. This was an appalling event that demands a response far greater than the apologies issued by the Red Sox organization and the city's mayor, Marty Walsh. Their words don't address the multi-volume history of the intersection of Boston sports and racism. Look, this discussion is not new. It's not even new in 2017. Earlier this year, Saturday Night Live comedian Michael Che created an uproar when he called Boston the most racist city he has visited, end quote. Now, I don't want to get into bigotry rankings here, and I'm not arguing that either the city or Fenway Park has any kind of exclusive rights on hate speech. I also have to say that you know you can't call out Boston and turn a blind eye to the fact that a place like Barch Springs, Texas, was the site where 15-year-old Jordan Edwards was just killed by police. These things are happening all over the country. But all of that being said, one can speak about the enduring history of Boston racism just by looking at its sports world. And that history is distinct, and I would argue that Fenway Park and the sports world in Boston is a very particular battleground that needs to be confronted. Look, in 2004, I remember, Barry Bonds caused an uproar when he said, quote, Boston is too racist for me. I couldn't play there. That's been going on ever since my dad, Bobby, was playing. That's not for me, brother, end quote. Certainly, Boston is home to remarkable people and anti-racist activists. But as these same activists will tell you, denying the presence of racism or saying not all Boston fans are racist does not reckon with the problem. It's a weak dodge, avoiding the task of figuring out how to confront it. There's this Massachusetts-born Sports Illustrated writer named Albert Breer who illustrated this exact problem on social media when he demanded proof of the incident, tweeting, Is it horrible to want some proof? I don't know. I've probably been to 200 games at Fenway in my life. Never heard a slur yelled at a player, end quote. What's so disgusting about Breer's comments, what makes them actually even worse than the whole this does not really represent Boston comments from Mayor Marty Walsh, is that they privilege his own experience, his own experience as a white guy in the fans who says, I've never heard any racism, while erasing an entire off-discussed thread in Boston sports history. There are bottom-feeding sports radio hosts at WEEI who have mimicked this approach. And Kurt Schilling as well is sending out websites talking about hate crime hoaxes. Look, demanding proof of racism is a very ugly road to walk down. As if only if a white person sees it did racism actually happen. Because think about what Albert Breer, think about what these idiots at WEEI, think about what Kurt Schilling, think about what they're all doing. These stories of black baseball players facing racism at Fenway Park, it goes back to Jackie Robinson, 1945, when he actually had a tryout for the Red Sox, and the general manager of the team, Joe Cronin, yelled, get that N-word off the field, so he didn't even get to play. Then there was Willie Mays, who had a tryout with the Red Sox in 1950, and it was canceled because they didn't want any black players. Think about that for a second. They could have had Willie Mays and Ted Williams in the same outfield. Then there's the fact that the Red Sox were the last team to integrate in 1959. 
And then there's the fact that players over the years, from Bobby Bonds to Barry Bonds, from Jim Rice to current Yankees pitcher CeCe Sabathia, has come forward with stories about what they face at Fenway Park. Most particularly, I want to point out current African-American Red Sox pitcher David Price, who says that he's heard racism from Boston fans. Look, I talk to players about racism a lot. I've done it a lot over the years. I always read interviews when they talk about it. And it's the David Price story that really comes out for me because other stories I've heard, I mean, I've been really racking my brain to try to find another example of this, but other stories I've heard from the last like five years has always been black ball players going to visiting parks and hearing these epithets. The fact that David Price is hearing this from Boston fans as a member of the Red Sox, I mean, it just speaks to something very ugly. And what I would say to Kurt Schilling and to Albert Breer and to all the people who are like racism truthers, I think you have really two choices. Either there is a 70-year conspiracy handed down like a family heirloom of black ball players, from Jackie to Willie to Jim Rice to David Price. Either this hoax spans 70 years or they're racist fans at Fenway Park. Gee, I wonder which is more believable. And of course, it's not just baseball. We can talk about the history of Bill Russell, the Boston Celtic great, um, who called Boston a flea market of racism, uh, to the racist invective thrown at hockey player Joel Ward just a couple of years ago, to the numbingly endless accounts that we've heard from players about abuse from Fenway fans. And people should read Howard Bryant's book, Shut Out, A Story of Race in Baseball, for a full accounting of how the Red Sox stubbornly hung on to their all-white status while baseball integrated across the country. As for Adam Jones, he's faced this racist treatment before in other ballparks, and he wants something much more intense to be done by teams and by Major League Baseball. He thinks that suspending races from the stadium is just a slap on the wrist. He thinks people need to be confronted, and he thinks they need to pay serious fines. It's hard to disagree with Adam Jones, but I have another idea. Another answer could be to take a page from European soccer and find the whole team, penalize them, take away draft choices, make them play in front of an empty stadium, which is what they do after racist incidents in soccer. Make the fans hurt so they police their own. Make the team hurt so they take this more seriously than just a press release. Most importantly, the fans themselves need to take a cue from Orioles COO John Angelos. This is part of what John said to the nation. He said, We must actively stand up to these individuals, movements, and the powers and philosophies that support and confront them. We must stand up to, speak truth to, and face down this growing movement of open, notorious, arrogant, and dictatorial hatred in all its forms. And we must do so in every place, from the living room to the boardroom and from the grandstand to the state house to the Capitol Mall, end quote. Until such steps are taken, the words of the Red Sox and Mayor Walsh will be only so much hot air. And now we've got a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Next issue coming out 517, 
Got an amazing series of articles. Don Gutenplan, Zoe Carpenter, George Zornick, Joan Walsh, and back of the book. Amazing stuff about the architect Louis Kahn, Francis Fitzgerald's new book on evangelicalism, and Laura Snape's on the band Muna. If people want to read The Nation magazine, you can always go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And now we have on the line the COO of the Orioles, John Angelos. So, John Angelos, when you first heard what happened to Adam Jones, what was your gut reaction? Well, it, history is replaying itself, and that these ideas or this lack of idealism, this inveterate sort of re- return to, to racist and divisive themes is unfortunately a way of life and, and, a, and a way of the, the human condition. I, I'd say the American societal condition, but I, but I think we have to acknowledge it, it. It's certainly part of the human condition, and and I think that's my that's my first reaction. Mm. Now, for our listeners who are not Orioles fans, a lot of us here responded so strongly, not just because it happened, but because of what we know about Adam Jones, the human being. Can you tell us a little bit about Adam Jones? Talk about who he is and why uh, his place in this community resonates. You know, when I think about Adam and his family and um, everything that goes along with who he is, words like thoughtful and grounded and um, altruistic and uh, words like those come to mind. Um, I think people expect a lot, whether you're a fan, whether you're an Orioles fan or a fan of baseball or sports fan generally, or, or if you're just somebody in the community who, for whom sports is a, a casual thing or of, of no interest. Um, I think people kind of have a conception of athletes as um, they, should, they should play a variety of roles or preconceived notions. And um, I think people sometimes forget how relatively young athletes are. Right. You know, st- when they're at the height of their, the pinnacle of their careers, they're somewhere between their early 20s and at the latest, you know, their late thirties with a few real, a few rare exceptions. And, um, it's difficult to be in the public eye and to perform at the highest possible level in a particular thing where, you know, that thing, but it's incredibly competitive that, that, that competition between the lines and then to be expected to take on all the other stuff that comes with it. The, the people yelling for your autograph, um, the people yelling at you who don't want your autograph, but want to tell you something that they you know, don't like about your performance the other night. And, you know, you've got your wife and family in the stands and, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot to handle at a really young age. And when I think about Adam Jones, I think about someone who's been able to navigate that not only in a thoughtful way for himself and for his family, but for people that he, surround him in society, many of whom he doesn't know and will never know, but for whom he has demonstrated a thoughtfulness. And so, um, you know, and I think Adam during his career has um, continued to expand that and become more and more thoughtful and more mature and more uh, altruistic in his thinking and, and in his actions as well. The other thing that's happened since Adam's come forward and said what took place is that a lot of players have come forward and said that this is 
a particular issue that they face when at Fenway Park. Uh, have you heard the same? Is that something that's ever talked about um, in the upper quarters of Major League Baseball? No, I, I have not heard that um, specifically. I have not, um, and I have no experience with that. But uh, you can't ignore the reality where there's smoke, uh, there's un- inevitably fire. And w- if, if uh, considering the, the number and the gravity uh, in terms of established players that um, who have who have talked about this, then um, you know there's no reason to doubt any of these people and any of these players and what they're saying and 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 that I know of. And uh, I think it certainly needs to be be thought about, but I think it there probably is a danger uh, that may not be the perfect word for it, but there can be a danger, I guess, in, in, in localizing. Um, because I look at this as a challenge, a problem, a challenge, an opportunity for not, not just all baseball uh, towns or communities, but all sports communities and for the country as a whole. Maybe this can become a teaching moment for the future, not just about Boston or the Boston community, but about um, the, the good and the, and the minority of bad actors there, um, but about the teaching moment for the country as to what, you know, what this reflects and, and what society can do next, what sports can do next to build on this in a positive way. Yeah, no, and I agree with everything you said, like making it just a Boston issue isn't necessarily helpful. Um, at the same time, I was really surprised that one of the testimonials about racism at Fenway was from David Price, who's, of course, a pitcher for the Red Sox. Because in my experience talking to players of color, black Latino players about racism at the park, it's almost uniformly when they're in a, a visitor, when they're a visitor to another park, and it's you know fan anger run amok. But to have it happen from your home team fans, I mean, that, that's pretty stark. Yeah, I mean that's obviously a, a, adds another dimension to the, to the look inside the um, distorted mind. We could go, uh, I think, have a, a long conversation. Maybe you know you would be better, or we'd be better having it with uh, various uh, psychiatrists and psychologists and people that get inside you know the beginnings of these things. And I think, at the risk of being an amateur psychologist, you know, m- many of this, many human aber- aberrant human behaviors go back to origin or family of origin issues, things that are unfortunately pumped into people's heads when they're little kids and, and um, that, that then are never really exercised or, or surgically removed mentally such that you, these things play themselves out. So when you see someone at a sporting event who's acting in a racist fashion, which is really ext- the extreme of the extreme, but, but I would even add, and it's a little bit off the the point of what happened with Adam, but it, it's sort of in there, in there somewhere to be sure. I, I would add um, intolerant behavior, um, not uh, you know uncivil behavior. You know, you know, when you're a grown person and you pay fifteen dollars, one hundred and fifty dollars, whatever you paid, and you go to a sporting event and you use that as a takeoff point to um, yell and scream in, in an enraged manner at players, taunting players, um, acting in ways that are disruptive to the people sitting around you. And this is all, of course, before you get to racism, which is a whole nother, on a whole nother planet. But, but I think, you know, there's something going on in society when you've got grown 
unfortunately it's or, or fortunately or unfortunately it's mostly men i, I it tends to be mm-hmm. you don't see a lot of a lot of women doing this but whoever it is whatever irrespective of that you do have to ask yourself when you're at a sporting event a ballpark a, a football stadium a, a, an arena for hockey or basketball or look at the major sports invariably you know nine feet or nine rows in any direction you're 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 surrounded by children um grandparents great-grandparents whatever the case may be uh, you know what is driving you to take an entertainment event and you know you don't see this in places like you know, obviously tennis matches golf tournaments uh for the most part you know music concerts nobody comes to the music concert and starts screaming um you know at the at the at the artists there is something about some of these um events which are which are supposed to be entertainment events and community gathering places where this type of, in, of uncivil and intolerant behavior, again, taunting and so forth, which doesn't cross the boundary of racism, it, I think is problematic and disturbing about the, in how it reflects the society. Well, I was just going to say, I don't know if this is on your mind as you're saying this, but you know, the same game where um, a portion of fans gave Adam Jones a standing ovation the next night, you probably saw the photos of people in the front row at Fenway and, you know, in, in $500 suits, uh, giving him the finger in unison as he's walking away from home plate. Yeah, I did. I did see that. I, I saw that on social media. Um, some people had grabbed a screenshot. We also, our network, the Masson network uh, caught some video of that. And, um, now, why is that okay? I mean, as we're talking about, you know, people talking about bands and substantions from the park and all the rest of it. I mean, I, I just don't see why anyone should have to deal with that when they go to work. Right. I, I don't think the players on the field should have to deal with that. I don't think that the other people that paid their price of admission to come to the event should have to deal with that. And um, similarly, um, you know, because I don't know that those people to whom you're referring who were, who were giving uh, Adam Jones the finger, and you know, I, I don't know what they were saying, but I certainly know what they were gesturing, and it, and, it, and it's equivalent to to, to such statements. Um, you know, I I don't I don't know what is driving that, and I certainly don't think, you know, maybe what we get out of this is that what's called for is. A, some sort of a gathering of the sports teams and the leagues and the unions. I saw that a couple of agents recently called out for, um, in sort of a, a general, a broad uh, way, ambiguous way to some degree of let's the leagues need to do more, the, or the whoever needs to do more. And I think that's good. I would completely embrace what those a couple of agents are saying. And, and maybe there, there's an opportunity here for for the teams to come together. The league offices and 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 the unions to come together and talk about intolerance and civility, or civility first, intolerance second, and racism in these sporting venues, and and maybe that's an opportunity to build up and teach something to the next generation about how you conduct yourself. I mean, what's the point of using these venues to bring society together if they're going to become abused? And and most important, if the majority is going to tolerate that kind of abuse. There's been a lot of talk in the last couple of days, and I don't think any of it's negative, but a lot of it is focused on apologies, and a lot of that tends historically, historically, maybe not in this case, to be ceremonial. People say, oh, well, this is a terrible event. 
we feel badly for whoever the player is, in this case, Adam Jones. There's some commentary made about the home team community or what have you being, you know, this being an exception and people being kind of, you know, a lot of sort of relatively trite kind of commentary. And then people kind of move on to the next game. The odd thing in this example is on the next night we had some controversy and yeah. on the next night after that we had some controversy. And uh, and we had sort of the league trying to do some things that were helpful that became, you know, didn't really work out in the gameplay and so forth. The Red Sox, by the way, I thought what they did with Mr. Henry and Mr. Warner and Sam Kennedy, their president, you know, they did what they could to go down and talk to Adam and so forth. And I think that's at minimally the right thing. And they, they did that and beyond. So, you know, but the question I guess is where we go from here. And that's what I wanted to, to talk to you about also. Um, you know, Adam Jones himself, he talked about, you know, there should be uh, stiffer penalties, high priced fines on fans, uh, is, is that is that the sort of thing you'd be in favor of? I mean, what, what else do you think Major League Baseball uh, and individual teams should do when faced with incidents like this? So those types of ideas, which I'm not opposed to, tend to be more, in, in my mind, in the vein of how we crack down on the offenders. And that's understandable. I'm interested in that, and, and certainly I, I think uh, the, the Red Sox would say, hey, we can always do more to root this kind of stuff out. I would say that about Camden Yards. I don't know of any team or in any sport that would say, we're doing all we can and we don't need to do more. I think everybody would say, let's do more. But all of that sort of is in the vein of cracking down on the violators. And I don't. I think that that is necessary, but if that's all we do, we've missed the opportunity to build up from the bottom. And what we need to build up and instill in, in, in adults of today, but certainly children of today and the next generation, that this type of behavior from racism at the top of the iceberg right on down to this intolerance and insensitivity and um, insensitive treatment of others is not only not acceptable, but it's aberrant. It's aberrant, hostile, psychologically uh, deficient behavior. So, so what can we do? Well, let's have a – perhaps, here's an idea. Let's have a World Congress or a U.S. Congress, but I think it should be a World Congress for a bunch of reasons, on civility and tolerance and um, opposing racism in sports and in society. Because in the U.S., let's say 150 or 60 million people are going to walk through the venues of the four major leagues. Well – there's an opportunity, right? 150 or 160 million people are going to walk through just the four major leagues. What kind of messaging can we put in those venues? And that's just in our venues. Then we've got our TV networks, our radio networks, our digital networks. And that's still just our platforms. How about going into schools at whatever the educators, educational professionals would say at the, with the right age? And let's take athletes into schools. And let's take our brands into schools and talk about civility and tolerance and fighting racism. And, and then, you know, maybe in 25 years, that that guy you referred to uh, that was giving Adam Jones the finger, that guy won't exist anymore or will be less frequent of an, someone you encounter. So I, I think, yeah, sure, you can crack down and throw out the offenders of today, and you should, and, and we need to be more vigilant. That would be part of that kind of coming together. 
But that's just the reaction point. The, the real thing is what are you going to do proactively? And these brands, these sports brands are so influential. And if we want, if we want to make them influential, we can if it's important enough. And I think racism and intolerance is important enough. Let me throw this at you as well, because um, one of the things, you know, FIFA, there's so much to criticize FIFA about with regards to racism in soccer without question. But one of the things they've done that has proven to be effective, and I'm just curious what you think about this, is that they, if, if something persists in a particular stadium, they make the home team play a game in front of empty stands and it's a, it's you know it's a financial hit of course because you miss the home game revenue so it's a form of a fine but more importantly it creates kind of a visual tableau that everybody sort of has to take stock in and because the goal i think has to be that this will only stop once fans start to police themselves and aren't bystanders when one individual yahoo says something and so that's what i would ask you is what 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 do you think about that and i'm asking you this in particular because you play. You uh, staged a game in front of an empty stands um, makeup game after uh, Freddie Gray was was killed in police custody. And I, at the time, I thought that was kind of intensely and beautifully important that you staged that game in such a fashion. So I think that's a great idea. I think the idea that you bring up, Dave, about uh, with respect to what FIFA imposed um, penalties for the venue, penalties for the home team organization, penalties essentially for the home fan base, and all of that is all good because it it falls under the heading, in my mind, of accountability. But accountability for all, not accountability for some. But By the way, I've often thought that that kind of an approach made some sense, and this is a different issue, but just to draw an analogy, it makes some sense with respect to um, – violations of league rules such as performance enhancing drugs and so mm-hmm. forth why if a team plays a season or part of a season or whatever it is with a player that turns out to have violated some rules and so forth should it be only the player that pays the price or should the organization pay the price should the home fans pay the price in some additional way or some total uh, you know, sort of comprehensive way it, it adds a, a level of accountability which in theory adds a level adds to the deterrence um, but I really like that idea. That's actually uh, one of the reasons I think that, you know, a, a coming together, a symposium, a forum of some kind to talk about these these bad happenings and what they reflect in sport and in society, because sport is really a window into society in so many ways, the, that this should be international because let's look at what was done in, in the English Premier League and in, and by FIFA generally to um, deal with a problem of aberrant human behavior. Adult so-called sporting fans and sports attendees, you know, fighting and, and, and turning a sporting event, a societal gathering event, is what it really is. Sports is the vehicle, but it's a community gathering place. It happens to be called a stadium or a ballpark or a, a pitch. Um, turning that into some place where they can act out either individual fantasies or political motivations or you know wacky philosophies and that and, and and they took drastic measures now i don't know what they did on the proactive side right to, to which is which is my idea to to say to the kids in, who are soccer fans throughout europe where soccer is you know the number one sport and really almost is number no number two somewhat of an exaggeration but essentially the case hey look um this is what was going on in the stands 
the players don't believe in it. The clubs don't believe in it. FIFA doesn't believe in it. And here's why. And you point to it and say, we fixed it. And I just think that that's the point of departure that gets us from these sort of ceremonial um, condemnations and apologies and so forth to something impactful and, and a real program to use this example. I mean, don't let this just go away until the next time, right. until the next player. I mean, that, that, there's the opportunity, I think, where you can take society and really take, take sport and really teach society with it. And that's the point of frustration I think a lot of people feel when it's just we're upset now, die down, then we'll just get upset again the next time, and we're not building bridges between these incidents to create systemic change. Ooh, you wrote this terrific piece that we ran at The Nation. It's It's gone totally viral, and so thank you for for doing that about what took place. And you spoke about what happened being a psychological problem, as you have on this interview today. But you also spoke about it being a reflection of our society. And I was hoping you could elaborate on that a little bit because I felt like you weren't just talking about it being a reflection on, you know, just the fact that we live in an imperfect world, but about very specifically right now, Trump's America, intolerance, and the idea that there does seem to be much more of a free reign of people to to say, hey, you know, this idea that I can't be racist is, you know, that's old school. I can be as racist as I want now. I guess as a general proposition, um, there's that expression, you know, there are two kinds of people in the world, people that walk in the room and turn the TV on and people that walk in the room and turn the TV off. If If there are two kinds of people in the world, I guess they're those that are accepting or or not object not objecting to the use of speech or discourse or or a way of framing issues that um divides and um demagogues and um targets people based on arbitrary attributes this group of immigrants that group of of individuals from another country this group of people who follow one religion or another, this group of people who have certain sexual orientations or another. There are those who use those types of that type of speech, think about the world in those ways, and there are those who don't and find that to be intolerant, intolerable. And I think that there's a parallel between the person who shows up at the ball game and throws peanuts at people and throws racial epithets at people and uses that to get across some sort of point of view. And, and, and in the larger political forum, people who in, in, in many of the same ways are in your face and are talking about things that are – and talking about people in ways that have shock value. You know, there's shock value to calling a ball player a, 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 a a name that it's unspeakable. Mm. There's shock value to throwing a bag of peanuts. There's shock value to standing in a section surrounded by hundreds of people and holding up your middle finger at somebody. The shock value, by the way, I think in the middle finger example is not so much that the player knows you're doing it. You're really showing it to the people around you. And what you're saying is, see, I did that. And, you know, I'm going to be in your face with these different types of ideas. And I think you've seen that, as you say, in 
the political discourse. And that's troubling, especially when that kind of divisive and demagoguing and shock value type of speech and conduct, uh, you know, let's bomb the crap out of them. Let's throw them out of the political rally. Let's um, target people based on these attributes. That type of conduct is divisive. And it's really troubling when it's presented under a masthead of populism because that's not populism. That's fake populism. That's never been what populism is about. That isn't what American populism was about in the late 1800s and early 1900s in the United States. In fact, it was about the opposite of that. It was about people from urban backgrounds coming together with people from rural backgrounds. It was people of different races coming together around combined economic and social beliefs about the way a society ought to care for those in it, all of those in it. So populism is about inclusiveness and unity, and that type of conduct is about disunity, discord, demagogy. It's really anti-patriotic, and it's anti-humanitarian. So I think I do. I think that what you you see in the tone and tenor of the political debate, and not only at times, but at far more times than we'd like, is not unlike the guy with his finger extended, and he doesn't care. Fifty little kids around him, or fifty grandmothers around him, or or, or fifty sort of sailors around him who might be offended by that, because there are a lot of big strapping guys who are offended by that. It's not just a children you know you know it, it's it's offensive to society to do that in the same way it's offensive to society to use a power base or to use a political movement to say we don't like muslims because they're muslims one is specific and one is broad but they're cut from the same cloth to my way of thinking yeah and you've been really generous with your time but i gotta ask you this only because when i told folks i was interviewing you about this subject uh, a lot of them brought up to me uh, the comments you made after Freddie Gray uh, died while in police custody and like, oh, John Angelos. Yeah, I remember he said those righteous things in 2015. And I, the, the, the question I had for you, which is the question the people around me have, is like, where for you does this come from? Because, I mean, with all due respect to, to John Henry and uh, Tom Werner at the Red Sox, and, and and Mayor Marty Walsh, you know, it's easy to put out a statement that just says, this is not us, we condemn these actions. It's a lot harder to do what you did, which is to put out something that condemns racism and tries to actually unravel why this racism runs so deeply and then doesn't make it just about one or two bad apples, but really tries to enhance people's thinking about how we can organize and stand up uh, against it. So, so where for you does that, did that impulse come from? I think it comes from thinking about how much harder it must have been to do those things 50 years ago or to speak up or speak out 50, 60, 70 years ago, or for that matter, 150 years ago. So at least for me, if I think not all that hard and long about how difficult it must have been to be in the position that, say, Muhammad Ali, who you've written about very eloquently, was in, or the position that 
Billie Jean King was in it, Martina Navratilova was in it, or so many athletes and so many people were in. And that doesn't just include athletes. It doesn't just include what goes on between the lines of a sporting event. It's also true of the difficult position that people were in 50 and 150 years ago in this country in boardrooms and on factory floors and in places that don't get the bright media lights and the, which has some comfort and protectiveness to it, but where all, where your jobs are on the line and your livelihood is on the line and the rare, the people that spoke up and how hard that must've been. And I just look at it that it's so much easier to do today. It's still a challenge and there's still repercussions and blowback, but, but if you can't, stand up today as an athlete today as Colin Kaepernick did mm-hmm. and as others have done if you can't stand up from the comfort of of being out of range you know the comfort of the boardroom the comfort of having wealth comfort of just being leading a relatively comfortable life you know what does that say about the future of society when you think about those who had nothing or if they were just beginning to have something Mm-hmm. we're willing to lose it all in the case of Muhammad Ali. I mean, people have to think about that, right? You, you're the heavyweight champ, and you can just be quiet and go on your way, and you will continue to be all that you've become. Or you can put all that at risk to speak up for the principle. And I, and I think that's what was lost, very much lost in the Kaepernick discussion mm-hmm. about whether you agree with him or you completely disagree with him, which I think both are fine. Both are views that one can take on a because what he was talking about had a bunch of complex issues. So if you, if you don't agree with Kaepernick at all, you cannot deny that he put everything on the line, put himself in the public eye, risk it all, put his family in the public eye, most likely diminished his economic and sponsorship opportunities and perhaps his athletic earning power. And that just says so much. I mean, how many of us can condemn him or others like him until we ask ourselves, have we put as much on the line as Ali did or Kaepernick did or the other athletes I've mentioned? And I, I, I think you have to ask yourself that. Now, I haven't begun to do that. So I don't find my example all that revelatory, but I think that's the standard that we have to measure ourselves against. And if we think we've measured up to those examples, then I guess we don't need to do much more. But I, I think people are doing this stuff every day and more and more. It's, I think you're going to see it more and more. And um, that's where it comes from. It comes from those. That's where every, every human, we comes from the examples that were set before us. So if we're going to recognize those heroic acts by people in the 1960s and the 1860s and before that, we can recognize them with ceremonial lip service or we can recognize them with the best measure of what we can do to replicate that. And to replicating that, we honor that. Mm -hmm. So that's where it comes from. Wow. Well, thank you very much uh, for your time. This is amazing. Really do appreciate it. Well, good to be with you, Dave. And um, I appreciate your You're asking me the question originally, and I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much.
And now a quick word from the other podcast sponsored by The Nation magazine, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener. This week, terrific interview with Laura Poitras, the Academy Award winner who won for her documentary about Edward Snowden. She talks about Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, and the subject of her new film, Risk. She calls Assange admirable, brilliant, and flawed. A very interesting perspective on Assange, who people seem to love and hate. She seems to be finding shades of gray. People should listen to what Laura Poitras has to say. And now it's time for the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. Just Stand Up. It would be easy to give this to Adam Jones, of course, because the only reason we're even having this discussion, even though this plagues baseball players every time they go to Fenway Park, uh, Adam Jones went public, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. Also, I think John Angelus deserves a ton of credit for coming forward with what he's saying. But in this particular case, Just Stand Up Award, I'm going to go with Mookie Betts who plays for the Boston Red Sox. And he put out a statement where he said, Fact, I'm black too. Literally stand up for Adam Jones. Racism has no place for the Red Sox or MLB. We are better than this. Okay, leaving aside for a second whether the Red Sox and MLB are better than this, it is very brave as a member of the Red Sox to speak out about this. Uh, Mookie Betts, thank you for doing so. It's also worth saying that there were some Boston fans who did take Mookie Betts seriously and stand up. But anybody saying that Adam Jones got some kind of full stadium standing ovation is lying. But shout out to all the fans who did actually stand up as well. Just stand up award for them too uh, for standing for Adam Jones in the middle of what was a very tense series for sure with ejections, uh, fastballs thrown at players, all kinds of nonsense going on. And for them to take a second to acknowledge that some things are bigger is a great thing. There was also a pretty ugly photo that emerged of Adam Jones the next day having all kinds of fans putting the middle finger in his face. You stay classy. And now we got the Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down! And, I mean, this goes in particular to absolute scum sports radio hosts who are doing the whole what if Adam Jones is lying thing. I mean, a bag of peanuts was thrown at him. It was thrown at him. Fans have attested to what happened. person in the stands has been banned for life from Fenway Park. And yet, somehow, some way, they're still doing the fake hate crimes thing. It reminds me when I was on a WEEI show and I was talking about hate crimes under Trump and their whole position was effectively in two words, Muslims lie. And so none of the hate crimes should be believed. The very next day after I was on this show, a Trump fan went into a mosque uh, in Quebec and killed several people. So um, go straight to hell. There's no other way to put this. And I also, but the reason why I want to bring this up also is that there's been so much talk recently about how sports media is liberal and ESPN is liberal. And what's so funny is that these discussions really do seem to cut out sports radio when they talk about sports media. So if you listen to sports radio and you're thinking that this is somehow a liberal enclave or a safe space, then you do not listen to sports radio. Seriously, sit your ass down. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch, looking at the latest political comings and goings. 
regards to Colin Kaepernick. And this one is a good one because a photo went viral of Colin Kaepernick being outside a Queens, New York City parole office donating two large boxes of his own custom-made suits. And the donation benefits an organization called 100 Suits, which is a group that provides free business attire to men and women who are on the job search process after going out on parole. This is a comment from 100 Suits. I think it's an interesting organization, and I want to talk about why, but this is what they say. They say, by being able to wear appropriate suits to their interviews, these men and women are better equipped to achieve gainful employment, which will ultimately help them to transition into mainstream society and live more productive lives. Through this program, we also provide free haircuts for men and wig referrals for women where needed, end quote. I mean, this stuff is a big deal because part of the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration is the inability to find employment afterwards. And the inability to find employment, of course, leads to recidivism. If you gain a high school or college degree while behind bars, there is a fraction of a chance that you will return behind bars. And yet, these programs are getting cut in prisons around the country. And private prisons have no incentive to have these kinds of programs on the inside. And, of course, when it comes to getting a job, having a suit makes a big difference. And the photo went viral because also I think it was a reminder right after the NFL draft, a time where numerous players with all kinds of sketchy pass got chosen by NFL teams. It was a reminder that here's this guy named Colin Kaepernick, somebody who's actually walking it and talking it, who's out there doing the work. And yet somehow in the eyes of NFL executives, he's a persona non grata. And now we have a call that we wanted to play that was made to the Edge of Sports Hotline, 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Let's hear the call. Am I done with football? i tell you what, what I'm tired of is the NFL being the big pig in the room. It doesn't matter what hour of the day or what week or what year. They try and pig every piece of news. It's just disgusting. I don't understand why they have to be like that. Maybe you do. Please explain it to me. Thanks, Dave. Great show. No, I appreciate the call. Here's the main thing I would say to that is, yeah, the NFL is now a a 12-month-a-year, 365-day business. And that's honestly, I agree with you. It's exhausting. Uh, But it's exhausting precisely because it's profitable. I mean, the ratings for the NFL draft, I believe, were higher than those for the NBA playoffs. I mean, it is so hegemonic as a sport that advertisers are desperately clinging to it for reasons that we talked about last week with ESPN, about ESPN laying off its best journalists because they're spending so much money on rights fees for live sports because live sports, particularly the NFL, are things that people will actually sit through commercials for and they're things that people will actually pay money to keep their cable for. And that makes it worth its weight in gold. And that's why the NFL is also so Teflon. No matter what scandals take place, no matter how poorly they treat their players, uh, no matter what we learn about CTE. I mean, I think there is a generational issue with the NFL where more and more parents aren't going to let their kids play, and that's going to hurt the sport. But we're talking 10, 20 years down the line before you actually see that if you want to see the NFL take a back seat in public life in the United States. And hey, 
Uh, again, the phone number is 401-426-3343. This week, uh, if you could, I would love folks to call in and say what you think the solution should be for racism in the stands. When this stuff takes place, please uh, let us know what it is you think Major League Baseball should do. Thank you all, everybody, for listening to us this week. Remember, you can always listen to past episodes of the show at www.edgeofsportspodcast.com. Please uh, retweet the show. Please give ratings to the show. Please tell a friend. And thank you so much to John Angelos for coming on, COO of the Baltimore Orioles. For everybody out there listening, for my co-producers, David Tigaboo and Daniel Baker, we are out of here. Peace. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.